I'm Eric Carter-Londine, the host of True Consequences Podcast and a family advocate. And I'm Charlie Worrell, the host of Crime Lines and a passionate storyteller. We've come together to create a new show, Crime Lines and Consequences. In each episode, we will explore cases, bringing in our unique perspectives and our shared belief that true crime is more than entertainment. These human experiences can change the way we see the world. So come along and eavesdrop on our conversations about cases you've heard of and some you haven't. And then join the conversation on social media by searching for Crime Lines and Consequences on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Crime Lines and Consequences is available now in your favorite podcast app and on YouTube. Friendly reminder that our content may not be appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Ann Arbor was founded in the 1820s, named by the two men who platted the land. They created the name honoring their wives, both named Anne, and in awe of the stand of burr oak trees in the area. On May 25, 1824, the 650-acre parcel 40 miles west of Detroit was registered at the Federal Land Office in Wayne County. In 1827, it became the county seat of Washtenaw County. Hoping that the state would choose Ann Arbor as the location of the state capital, a large parcel of land was set aside for this purpose. The state instead chose Lansing, which beat out Jackson, Marshall, and Ann Arbor for the honor. In the 1830s, the University of Michigan relocated to Ann Arbor from its home in Detroit. They moved on to the land that had been set aside for the state capitol. It was at this time that the school changed its name from University of Michigania to University of Michigan. And the University of Michigan is known as one of the foremost research universities in the United States. Some of its notable alumni include playwright Arthur Miller, lawyer Clarence Darrow, and physician-turned-politician Ben Carson. Both Tom Brady and Michael Phelps are U of M graduates. Musicians Iggy Pop and Madonna attended the university but did not complete their degrees. The school is so well-regarded that during a 1960 visit to promote formation of the Peace Corps, John F. Kennedy gave a speech in Ann Arbor where he introduced himself as a graduate of the Michigan of the East, Harvard University. When the university arrived, the city of Ann Arbor flourished into a pretty, pleasant, and tree-lined community, with a bustling downtown and even busier campus. In the 1950s, the population of Ann Arbor increased by 20,000 people each fall when students arrived. On the border of Ann Arbor is the town of Ypsilanti, one of those places you have to be from Michigan to know how to pronounce. Ipsy, as she's fondly known, is home to Eastern Michigan University. While only a few miles from the University of Michigan campus in Ann Arbor, 
the two schools are very different. University of Michigan having a much higher profile, while Eastern is best known as a great place to earn a teaching degree. Eastern student body and campus are significantly smaller. In 1951, Eastern Michigan University was still known as Michigan Normal College. The name wouldn't change until 1955, but for the purposes of our story, I will be referring to it as Eastern Michigan University or Eastern. If you're not familiar with the term normal school or normal college, it was an educational facility created specifically to train students to become teachers, but you don't see the term very much these days. Our victim, Pauline Campbell, was 34 years old. Born in Ohio during the First World War, she was placed in an orphanage and later taken in by a farm family. Pauline worked hard to get an education, first cleaning houses, then working as a nurse's assistant until she finished her studies to be a nurse. She had a slight build with light brown curly hair and high cheekbones. September fifteenth was a warm late summer day in Ann Arbor. By the time her shift ended at St. Joseph's Hospital, it was nearly midnight, and the temperature was more comfortable. Pauline was walking from the hospital to her boarding house on Washington Heights, a distance of less than half a mile. She didn't hear anyone creeping up behind her. She probably didn't know what was coming when the heavy mallet smashed down against her skull, sending her to the sidewalk in a heap. She was struck again. Then. Two men approached her as she lay on the sidewalk, her skull fractured, blood leaking from the wounds. One of the men grabbed her shoulders, the other her feet, and they carried her toward a waiting car. The men didn't notice that blood from the attack had sprayed against a nearby vehicle, flung there when the mallet was swung for a second blow. Her attacker didn't realize that Pauline's blood dotted his pants and shoes. Then a voice shouted, "Hey, you'll get blood in my car!" The two men dropped Pauline's body, grabbed her red leather purse, got into the car, and sped away. And this wasn't the first time a nurse walking home after a late shift had been assaulted. A few days earlier, twenty-two-year-old Shirley Mackey, a nurse at the University of Michigan Hospital, was struck with a wrench outside of a dormitory in a robbery attempt. She screamed and ran away, only stunned by the blow. Mackey was able to give a description of her attacker, but she hadn't had a good look at him. She did recall someone saying "Good night, Bob," just before she was struck. Because of the assault on Mackey and another less serious attack against another nurse, University Hospital had beefed up security for employees. Mackey walked away from her attack with some bruises, but Pauline Campbell wasn't so lucky. Ann Arbor police jumped on the case. This murder, and it was a brutal one, was a rarity in the town. The Ann Arbor Police Department, or AAPD, was under the leadership of Chief Casper Enkman. He'd taken over in 1946 and ran a relatively progressive department, especially by 1950 standards. AAPD had a female officer, Jewel Reynolds, and in 1950 they hired their first black officer, Clayton Collins. I know it's not much by today's standards, but in 1950 it was impressive. Years later, when Collins was asked about his time as an Ann Arbor officer, 
He said he received very little racism from the department or the community, and he stayed on the force for five years before opting for a career change. So AAPD called on Ypsilanti and Milan police for assistance in tracking down the perpetrator. They, of course, looked at all the, quote, sex deviates, which gave them about 50 people to rule out. Then they looked at Pauline's co-workers, asking that their time be accounted for the night she was attacked. The mayor of Ann Arbor, William J. Brown, visited the scene of the crime, expressed concern about the lack of lighting in the area, and vowed to have additional streetlights installed. He publicly offered a $500 reward, hoping someone would turn in the killer. Brown said, quote, I can't help but feel that someone else, besides the killer, knows about this brutal slaying. He would be doing this community a great service by coming forward. Mayor Brown was right. Someone did know about the murder and someone wanted to do the right thing. That someone was a college sophomore at Eastern, Dan Bowie. On Wednesday, September 20th, Bowie walked into the precinct and told the officer on duty that he had information about the murder. The story that Bowie would tell Detective Dwayne Bauer was intriguing and pushed the investigation in a new direction. Police had been looking at local deviants, criminals, even Pauline's co-workers but the perpetrators of this terrible crime were far more frightening. Pauline Campbell had been attacked by three teenage boys from what would be considered good families. She was beaten and robbed for the money in her purse, left for dead on the side of the road just a few feet away from the safety of her home. Dan Bowie had been in some trouble, nothing too serious, but he was on probation, and he was looking to stay on the right side of the law. He had received well-intended lectures from his father, a Methodist minister, about doing the right thing, making good choices. You know, the same conversations all parents have with their kids at some point. Bowie decided he wanted a good life and a future. His goal was to get through his probation and stay out of trouble. When he ran into his friends Bill Morey and Max Pell days before the murder, Maury confided in him about the attack on Mackie. Bowie would later testify that Maury laughed when recounting how Mackie had cried out and yelped when he hit her with a wrench. Pell said he'd laughed so hard over the attack on Mackie at how she'd cried out that he could barely drive away from the scene. Bowie knew the two from high school. He also knew Dave Royal, but only met him a week or two before the attacks in Ann Arbor. The names he gave to Detective Bauer were Bill Morey, Max Pell, and David Royal. While Dan Bowie didn't know for certain it was Mackie and his friends that killed Campbell, it certainly sounded like something they would do. The way Morey and Pell had laughed about assaulting Nurse Mackie troubled him. The story that Bowie told Bauer was enough to convince investigators. He walked into the department at 3 p.m., and by 5 o'clock, the Ipsy police chief, accompanied by a captain from his department, arrested Max Pell at Duran Chevrolet, where he worked as a mechanic. At 5.30, the duo arrested Maury at his Pearl Street home, and at 5.45, detectives from Ann Arbor and the Michigan State Police are in Milan, arresting David Royal. They will have confessions in hand by 11 o'clock that night. On Thursday morning, the three teenagers are arraigned in Ann Arbor before Judge O'Brien, and the trial will start in less than a month. 
The three young men were taken to the state capitol in Lansing, a 70-mile trip, to be questioned by detectives with the state police. Pell confessed first, with Royal confessing next. Maury held out the longest, but eventually, he said that he was there, but too drunk to remember exactly what had happened to the woman in Ann Arbor. Pell's car was loaded with evidence. Inside, they found bloodstains and the murder weapon. Pell confessed when police told him they would take apart his car, a 1948 Chevrolet Club Coupe, to get the evidence they needed. Hoping to spare his beloved car from damage, he told his story, including the part where he'd used a hose to clean the blood out of his car. Bill Morey's parents were devastated to learn what their son had done, the crimes he'd committed. Morey's father, Bill Morey Jr., was quoted as saying, There's never been any trouble in the family before. This is hard to understand. It was made especially difficult when police found blood-stained clothes their son was wearing on the night of the murder in his bedroom at the Morey home in Ypsilanti. What made Bill, a kid with many good things going on in his life, decide to assault, rob, and murder defenseless women for cash? 18-year-old Bill Morey was in the Naval Guard. He'd recently completed training at the Naval Air Station on Gross Eel outside of Detroit. The Gross Eel Naval Station was one of the premier training bases for Navy pilots and the Royal Air Force during World War II. Former President George Herbert Walker Bush did his training there in the 1940s. Maury's future looked promising. He had saved his money and enrolled at Eastern Michigan University for the fall semester. Max Pell was an only child. He'd been a good student at Roosevelt, as in Teddy, high school in Ypsilanti. He played football and ran track. The spring of 51 brought a change in him. He dropped out of school and went south looking for work. He returned home briefly and then went to Oregon to work as a logger. That didn't suit him either, so he'd come home late in the summer, getting a job at a local garage. Pell had also gotten in trouble with Ypsilanti police in the spring of 1951, when he'd left the scene of an accident. The first week of September, he was caught stealing gasoline and fined $15. David Royal, the third and youngest member of the crew, had dropped out of school in his sophomore year. He'd enlisted, but was discharged on a medical because of a bad knee, less than a month into his service. In 1951, he'd been charged with traffic violations and caught rummaging through cars in the Willow Run parking lot, but he was never in serious trouble. He was known to police in his hometown of Milan, which is located 10 miles south of Ann Arbor. Royal wasn't well known to Pell or Maury. He'd met them late in the summer, and they'd only recently started hanging out. Pell and Maury especially liked Royal because he usually had money. He worked construction and earned a decent living at it, so he was willing to kick in money for gas or for beer on a Friday night. A fourth man, 18-year-old Daniel Myers of Ypsilanti, was arrested and charged in the assault on Nurse Shirley Mackey. He would be tried separately on a lesser charge, and despite testimony from many as to his upstanding character, he would be found guilty. Ann Arbor was a safe place to live, study, and work. And while violent crime did occur, it was rare. When Pauline's body was discovered, hers was only the third violent death in the city since the 1950s began. 
In August of 1950, Stanford Thompson was arrested and charged in the shooting death of his ex-girlfriend. In February of 51, Anita Velasquez was found dead in her apartment. Her throat slashed. Her husband Marcelo was nowhere to be found. He'd fled to Austin, Texas, where his family turned him in to local authorities. Marcelo was tried and found guilty in the death of his wife. And while both of these murders were violent and terrible, both were attacks on women, but they weren't random attacks by strangers. The murder of Pauline Campbell created a stir in the community. People were frightened. Thankfully, Dan Bowie, a sophomore at Eastern Michigan University, came forward and arrests were made. The subjects of these arrests rocked the community. Residents of Ypsilanti and Milan were stunned that boys from their towns could have done something so horrible, and then show no remorse for the death of a defenseless nurse. As police questioned the boys, the story came out. The night of September fifteenth, the trio went to the Ideal Tavern in Milan to buy beer. They knew the proprietor would sell to them, despite being underage. The legal drinking age in Michigan was twenty-one. The trio then picked up two girls, and the five of them drank and partied until the girls had to be home at eleven o'clock. After that, they drove into town. Pell was driving, Bill beside him, and their new friend Dave in the back seat. The three were short of cash, low on gas, and a little drunk. Bill spotted a woman walking alone, headed away from the hospital. He told Pell to pull over. Maury picked up a rubber-headed mallet, something that Pell used at the garage to bump out dents from cars. Maury hefted the mallet, slipped quietly from the car, and hurried along the grass to catch up with the nurse, a nurse that wasn't aware of danger lurking nearby. When he got close enough, he swung the mallet, connecting with the side of Campbell's head. Maury later said. She didn't even know I was behind her. I hit her twice, and she dropped to the sidewalk. Maury didn't know that when he swung the mallet to hit her again, he left a spray of blood on the door of a car parked nearby. That's the amount of force he was using. The teens tried to carry the still breathing Campbell to the car, but Pell didn't want her blood to ruin his ride. They abandoned her body next to the road, figuring she would be considered a hit and run. From her purse, they took all of the money, totaling about a dollar fifty. Maury explained that they needed money for gas, and hopefully, if there was enough in her purse, they could also buy beer. They tossed her red handbag over a bridge into the Huron River. The bloody mallet remained in the back seat of the car. The three of them were hungry and stopped at the Fifth Wheel Restaurant on the Willow Run Expressway. If you're curious, I believe the Willow Run Expressway was the stretch of what is now I-94 that runs from the Willow Run campus east to Detroit. It was built in the early 1940s to help bomber production at Willow Run connect with the port of Detroit. It was a 21-year-old medical student named Christian Helmus that discovered a mortally wounded Pauline Campbell and called out for help. One of Campbell's neighbors in the boarding house actually heard the crime. Including the car door slamming and the Chevy racing from the scene, she had no idea that she was ear witness to a murder. We will be right back after a word from this week's sponsors. The trial began October thirty-first with jury selection, and honestly, don't you love the quick turnaround on this? When the trial started in earnest on November second, 
Maury was called the stand, and he testified that he'd been drinking heavily, that in the hours between 8 p.m. and midnight, he'd consumed 10 beers, maybe as many as 12. William R. Maury III was tall and good-looking, and the courtroom was often filled with girls from the local high school who had skipped classes to watch the proceedings. When asked if he could recall the attack, he said he remembered being out of the car. He remembered Dave Royal pulling at him, but he didn't remember much else. Washtenaw County Prosecutor Douglas Reading asked him point-blank if he'd struck Pauline Campbell with a mallet, and Maury responded that he didn't know. Next, Reading held up the mallet, the murder weapon, for Maury and tried to hand it to him. Maury refused to take it, and it clunked heavily to the floor. Next, Prosecutor Reading presented photos of Campbell's injuries to Maury. Maury glanced at the pictures, then turned his head away so he couldn't see them. Why won't you look at her? Reading demanded of him. It isn't pretty, was Maury's response. Maury's attorney, Ralph Keyes, brought up many times during his questioning of the three defendants that they'd been drinking beer all evening. Being under the influence is a mitigating factor in someone's guilt or innocence. Under Michigan law at the time, if someone is under the influence of alcohol, they cannot be convicted of first-degree murder with its mandatory life sentence, no parole. The death penalty wasn't even an option because Michigan was the first state to abolish its use back in 1847. Pell was next on the stand. He admitted to letting Maury out of the car before Campbell was killed. He denied that they were following her, but that he and Royal were looking for Maury, who had disappeared after exiting the car. Pell was a frustrating witness, repeatedly responding, I don't know, to Reading's many questions. Pell also revealed something that had puzzled investigators. Shirley Mackey heard someone call out, Good night, Bob just before she was struck. This was a code Pell and Maury worked out as part of the game of assaulting people to confuse their target with a false name. Royal was next on the stand. He testified that he didn't know how they'd ended up in Ann Arbor. He said that Bill got out of the car and hurried after a girl. When they caught up with him, Royal's window was down and Bill Maury asked him for help. When he exited the car, he saw a woman on the ground, and Maury asked him to grab her arm. He hadn't been able to see Campbell on the ground. She'd been concealed behind a parked car. Royal said he was frightened and did as he was told. Pell told them to leave her and get in the car, and that's what he did. Aside from the testimony of the accused, I have a feeling that the testimony of Ann Arbor police officer Walter Dedula held weight with the jury. Dedula was the first officer on scene and rode with Campbell to the hospital. He testified that Campbell had tried to speak many times but could not form words. He stayed with her until Pauline took her last breath at the hospital where she had just finished her shift. They also heard from the pathologist, Dr. Jack G. Weinbaum. He testified that her skull had two fractures and said that, quote, her brain was torn, crushed, and oozing out through the holes in her skull, a grim reminder of the damage done to an innocent victim. A toxicologist from the Michigan Department of Health, Dr. Edwin Kibla, testified that items taken from Pell's 1948 Chevy were tested and found to have human blood on them. 
Items taken from the car to be tested included floor mats, car upholstery, a blanket, and a jacket. Toward the end of the trial, prosecutor reading asked the judge that the jury get to examine the wrench used on Shirley Mackey and the mallet that ended Pauline Campbell's life. Keyes leapt to his feet to object. At that moment, reading dropped the items onto the table, causing a loud crash in the courtroom, a sound that emphasized the heft and weight of these weapons. Spectators giggled at the disruption causing Judge Brakey to admonish them. He did allow the jury to handle both weapons. Pell and Royal also took the stand in their own defense, but it wasn't enough to spare them. On November 13, 1951, the case went to the jury, and three hours later they handed out guilty verdicts. A first-degree murder charge for Maury the mallet wielder, first-degree murder for Pell the driver, and second-degree murder for David Royal. On November 23, 1951, the trio received their sentence. Pell and Maury were sentenced to life in prison, and Royal was sentenced to 22 years. Maury's mother wept openly as the sentence was read. Pell and Royal's mothers were more subdued, pressing a handkerchief to their eyes. Marcelo Velasquez was also in court that day to be sentenced for the murder of his estranged wife. After the murder, Pauline Campbell's body was taken north to Gratiot County, Michigan, where she was buried in a cemetery near Alma. I wish there were a happier ending to this story. Sadly, there isn't. Pauline Campbell was an innocent victim who died a terrible death at the hands of a young man who cared only for the little bit of cash in her purse. Her head was smashed in so some kids could fuel up their car and continue their evening of partying. The Ideal Tavern, which happily sold beer to three underage boys on September 15, 1951, lost their liquor license before the year was out. The Milan City Council also voted to impose a curfew so that their youths are not out on the street at all hours. All three men, Maury, Pell, and Royal, were sent to prison. David Royal, sentenced to second-degree murder, served 10 years. He was released in 1962. Max Pell, the driver, was released in 1967, and William Morey, who had attacked Pauline Campbell, would serve 20 years. While incarcerated, Morey was a model prisoner. He wrote pieces for magazines, coordinated the prison blood drive for the Red Cross, and taught other prisoners to read and write. Michigan Governor William Milliken commuted Morey's sentence in November of 1970. Sure. He'd been a model prisoner, but he committed a terrible crime. Pauline Campbell was an orphan. At the time of her death, she had no family or loved ones. And in 1970, there was no one to protest his release. David Lee Royal died in 1995. Maury died in 2005. And as of 2017, Max Pell was still alive, but I'm not sure if he's still with us. David Bowie, who turned in the perpetrators, died in 1978. He was 48 years old. And if you're wondering, yes, he did get that $500 reward from Mayor Brown. In researching this case, I found a wonderful picture of Walter DeLula from 1958, in uniform with his motorcycle. Remember, he was first on scene with Pauline Campbell and rode with her to the hospital where she died. He testified about her condition during the ride to the hospital. 
I think, especially in cases like this, it's important to remember the work that our first responders do, the things that don't make the news or create headlines. We may not know about these moments, but I assure you that the officers never forget them. There is a photo of Delula on our website at alreadygonepodcast.com. When the Ann Arbor Police Chief Casper Enkman retired in 1960 after 14 years leading the department, the murder of Pauline Campbell, and the confession that Enkman patiently coaxed out of 18-year-old Max Pell was the story that he discussed as he retired. This was the most prominent and brutal murder the community had seen, and it would be the worst case they would see until 1968, when another student from Eastern Michigan University, John Norman Collins, began killing young women in and around Ypsilanti. Enkman died in 1982. He was 76 years old. Mayor Bill Brown, who set to work making Ann Arbor Street safer after the death of Pauline Campbell, died of bone cancer in 1970. Mayor Brown was also known for owning car dealerships. As a local, I believe that Bill Brown Ford, in Livonia, ties back to Mayor Brown. In an interesting twist, when William Morey III was born in Ypsilanti on January 27, 1933, it was Dr. Brakey that brought him into the world. In November of 1951, it was Dr. Brakey's son, Judge Brakey, who sentenced him to life in prison. I came across this case while beginning research on John Norman Collins. Pauline's death and the huge impact it made on the community resonated with me. Her murder was the worst the community had ever seen, and that was the case for 16 years, until the late 1960s brought something far, far worse. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Thank you.